What are we to make of the slew of executive orders coming out from President Biden right at the beginning of his administration? Um, and uh, especially the, the ones bearing on the border. Um, it's kind of confusing what to make of that new policy. And moreover, um, is it really a good thing that there are promises or are they threats to make the California model an example for the nation? These questions and more we'll be discussing today on today's Independent Outlook. Welcome, I'm Graham Walker coming to you from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California. We are stone's throw across the bay from San Francisco. Uh, grateful to have you with us today to talk about these questions and maybe more. Uh, we're also very grateful as always for our partners from thinkspot.com who are helping us to uh, make this available to the public. And keep in mind too, that if you are participating through ThinkSpot, you can toss your questions in the chat box and those will eventually get to me and we'll try and take some of them live as we go along here. For our conversation today, of course, I am joined by my two partners in crime, as usual. First of all, David Thoreau, president and founder of the Independent Institute. Good morning. Welcome, David. Good morning. Oh, actually, it's probably not morning here. It's afternoon. But anyway, we're glad to see you, David. Thank you for starting the Independent, thank you for starting the Independent Institute some 34 years ago. Grateful for that. And also uh, the director of our Center on Educational Excellence, Dr. Williamson Evers. Greetings, Bill. Greetings. Great to have you both with us. Um, and again, all the folks who are joining us uh, from a distance today. Glad to have you. So uh, let's take a look at uh, these executive orders, or at least some of them. I mean, there's too many to consider in detail. I understand there's three dozen or more that have already been signed by President Biden, and uh, they cover the gamut of things. Um, I'm a little concerned about some of them, um, maybe more than some. Um, for example, and we'll start with the question, actually, I don't usually do this, but we have a, a very pertinent question here at the top of the program from one of our participants who says, I would like to hear your thoughts on the executive order to mandate equal access without regard to biological sex of a person. Some people have called this the war on women by the Biden administration. Huh. Do you have any comments on, on that, Bill? What's this all about? Well, uh, beginning in the Obama administration, uh, various executive actions, regulations, rules, advisory letters said that uh, biological males who said that they were psychologically female uh, had to be admitted to girls' sports, girls' locker rooms, girls' restrooms. Uh, this was reversed under the Trump administration and now it's coming back. And so the, the worries, that uh, was a strongly worded op-ed in the Wall Street Journal right after it happened, but that this is terribly damaging to girls' sports. Uh, obviously the others are privacy problems of serious matter, but in the case of girls' sports, uh, men, biological men are you know, they're, str they're stronger, their upper body strength is stronger, their uh, lung capacity is stronger. They, they can and will, even mediocre male athletes are going to outcompete top female athletes. And so in a sense, if anybody can claim to be female, then the whole category of girls sports is, is sort of meaningless. And this comes from this idea that uh, sex is not biological, it's just socially constructed. And, uh, you know, it's factually wrong. It's not really in accord with natural law of nature or whatever. It's just not. And so it's, a, it's, it's not fair to these girls that want to excel in sports and get a chance to show what they can do. And, uh, you know, they don't get some scholarships they might get. They don't get certain kinds of recognition and leadership opportunities and so forth. Well, it, it, it's also kind of a strange problem for progressives in general. It's one more thing, and that is, if you're going to give all these special privileges to women, and then you're going to say everybody's a woman, you're like <laughs> at war with your war with yourself. So they're not I saying mean, everyone's I, a so woman. Within, so within the left, within the women's movement, there are problems with this. Yeah, there are. There are feminist groups that are strongly opposed to this because they know it's basically eliminating the existence of women themselves. If a man can just declare himself a woman, then there is no status for being a woman. It's simply subjective. Incidentally, there are about 30 
And, and, and at the same time, here are all these people claiming to be of a different race, right? right? I'm a black, yeah. I'm a Latino, yeah. uh, when they actually have no ancestry <laughs> background in this. Right. So this whole thing is, is turning out to be, uh, identity politics is turning out to have its own internal contradictions. Sorry yeah, to interrupt. It's just postmodern uh, gibberish, really. There actually are 30, I believe at least 30 uh, male sprinters in high schools around the country, all of whom can beat the world record in, in sprinting by a woman. So there is no future to women's sports and there's no future to being a woman because women don't have any status. It's simply subjective. And if you're in an office, if you're in an academic department, the academic department is, is there's a complaint, there aren't enough women on the faculty, the men must declare themselves to be women. So, I mean, the whole thing is, is crackpot. It's not based on the science in any way. Men wouldn't just routinely declare themselves women. Uh, right. After all, most men wouldn't want to just declare themselves women, so you guys are making too much of it. But I think the fact- But you might, you might think with all the claims of, of systemic oppression that people wouldn't declare themselves of other ethnic groups or racial groups. That's right. But and they do. yet they are. Preferential treatments, that's right, exactly. There are incentives now to declare yourself a member of a favored category. That's uh, right. That is a category which is going to be favored because it was previously disfavored. So right. you shift categories in response to the incentives. I think that's what's going on here. So all these different tests and uh, departments and schools and companies for diversity are just going to be completely imploded on themselves because if diversity is simply subjective, there is no basis to have a diversity program. You know, you, you can declare yourself to be a man one day, a woman the next, you know, or whatever. And why stop with, with being human? Why not declare yourself to be a horse or a cricket or a Martian? I mean, part of the, you know, traditionally in the field of psychology, if someone uh, claimed he was Napoleon or Cleopatra, you would uh, be concerned about the person's mental well-being. But if it's all subjective, anything goes. You know, what's interesting as a legal matter, um, what's going on here is that there was a finding or a regulatory decision under the Obama administration that somehow the Civil Rights uh, Act uh, covered sex in this odd, unnatural way. Uh, that wasn't ever enacted by Congress, I don't think, that decision. Now then Trump undid it and Biden's putting it back in. Why are these matters being settled by bureaucratic fiat rather than by act of Congress. Because of the Supreme Court case, the Bostock case, that's, that's the uh, basis they're using for this. Mm -hmm. right. The real root of it is giving special privileges to people yes. or burdens. We don't want burdens imposed on people because of their ascriptive characteristics. Exactly. But the ascriptiveness is what's weird about it. I mean, Granted that most men wouldn't want to declare oh, they're, themselves. They're making it ascriptive, unascriptive. It's unascriptive, yeah, I mean, or it's self-ascriptive. And the issue is not whether people should be free or not right. to do this. They're, they should be free. Absolutely. It may yeah. be unwise, it may be harmful, mm -hmm. but the view that you can impose it on other people right. is where you draw the line in a free society. Yeah, and demand publicly supported benefits in response exactly. to your decision. Right. Yeah. Uh, of course, keeping in mind that um, there may be people for whom it seems like it's, it's not a decision on their part, and I understand that that's the case, but the fact is, remains that with regard to public matters, uh, these decisions as to what sex you are, um, if, even if they are allegedly grounded in some natural fact invisible to the rest of us, they are nevertheless invisible to the rest of us. That, that in principle, the idea of your identity is undetectable, undiscernible to anyone but yourself. That's the nature of the argument that they make about, about gender identity. And if so, it's a very strange category for rights if it depends upon a distinction, a decision that is perceptible only to the subject person. They are the, so the sovereign. And it's being extended to children uh, there are laws that have been adopted in certain places that prevent parents from knowing whether um, a child is being courted and asked to um, become female if they're male, or biological male, whatever, and that they, there are groups that want to uh, have it so the school 
can uh, inject hormones and have all sorts of other treatments without the parent's permission. So this is really, uh, this is really bad news and it's child abuse, certainly, yeah, but it it's is. not based on science. It's, you know, people can believe lots of things and that's, that's their right. But again, they shouldn't have the right to impose it on other people. It's especially peculiar in view of the way that President Biden has framed his agenda. He says we're going to go back to facts, evidence, and truth and science. But this is a form of fact which is, as I say, uh, invisible, yeah. <laughs> except to the subject person. Well, Democrats always claim they're for science, but except in teaching reading, except in, you know, certain pet ideas of theirs about climate, except in, uh, you know, here they are believing in science, but also the whole Clinton administration was full of people who believed the aliens had landed in Area 51. Well, surely you're exaggerating on that, Bill. I'm not. I'm right <laughs> up to the president. Well, um, I think I'm not going to go there right now. However, I will make this point, which is uh, that regarding science, um, there are some other issues emerging now at the beginning of the Biden administration. Apparently today, President Biden said that environmental justice would be at the core of all that we do in his administration. And he has previously um, uh, talked about how uh, there is a existential crisis, climate crisis, and he has already issued a few orders touching on this climate crisis. Uh, it seems that this is the, the centerpiece of the claim that we're turning away from folly and looking just at science. And yet I wonder whether this claim about uh, environmental justice is a is scientific or an empirical claim. Any comments, gentlemen? Yeah, I mean, we have a new book uh, that's coming out shortly called Hot Talk Cold Science. You can Here's a copy of it. It's behind your, and it's behind your head there, David. Too. Yeah, that's right. Take a peek head. at this one on my screen here. There you right. go. So keep going, David. So, you know, raising questions like that, this has been going on for decades. Um, and it's, it's a question of the, what the scientific evidence shows. And the, most of the, pe of the people who make the claims of uh, some sort of crisis uh, are making it on projections based on the climate models that exist. Uh, there are about 30 or so of these models. Most of them are funded by the federal government or other governments. Um, and they don't comply with the evidence of the record of uh, surface temperatures and balloon measurements and satellite measurements. And so this has really become sort of a civic religion and it's a litmus test uh, of whether you comply with it. You know, the, the Greta Thunberg kind of approach um, is based on really uh, a misreading of the science and a narrative that's hysterical. There is no evidence of any crisis whatsoever in climate. And, you know, we can go through the particulars of it, but the reality of this is that it's being used by interest group combination, same old story, the interest groups and those who are true believers. And there are plenty of both who are pushing Biden in this direction. So this doesn't mean that we're not people ourselves of science who don't think we be, we're open to evidence. Mm -hmm. We're open to arguments about mitigating factors. Yeah. We're even open to some wild ideas that people have about spraying things in the atmosphere if there really is a crisis or things mm -hmm. like that. It should be an evidentiary question, but it should not be uh, treated as some uh, cult type adherence. Yeah. And it shouldn't be a litmus test as to whether you're able to talk to other people and be part of open discussion in our society. I've heard a lot of people comment that they would be a lot less skeptical about the climate alarmism agenda if there were a lot less suppression of skepticism about the climate alarmism agenda. Well, unfortunately, there was uh, two episodes, one called Climate Gate and then Climate Gate 2, uh, which came out years ago, in which it was found out that one of the major climate uh, centers, the East Anglia um, Climate Unit uh, in, which, England. In, in England, England, was not only dumbing down the data and inserting false data, but were involved in a deliberate campaign to smear critics who were raising these questions, including getting the blacklisted 
and putting pressure on journalists not to publish their work. Uh, so it, that's not science. If you have a better case, make it. And science is an iterative process. It's, it, science evolves as different theories are proposed, and there's no endpoint. You may, you may coalesce in certain areas, but then something else might come along which will provide a better hypothesis that is inconsistent with the evidence. So to take this East Anglia case, the, the data controversy had to do with modern data that we're pretty sure about. And then as you go backward, you have tree ring data. The problem for these uh, uh, people that were pushing a climate ideology was that the tree ring data did not fit well with their story of history and where things were going. And so they just wanted to fill in the blanks with conjecture of their own. And that's not really scientific. And they wanted to you know, cover that up. The reason why tree, tree ring data were used is because the temperature readings of thermometers didn't exist Right, At, going back to a certain, a certain time. Well, right. right, and so tree rings and, and uh, also glacial ice samples and other things are a part of this record. And there are claims, for example, one of the most famous hoaxes uh, was the what's called the hockey stick, which was the claim that the temperature of the Earth was essentially uh, constant throughout history, geological history. Uh, and then in the 20th century is shut up like the blade of a hockey stick. And uh, what two scientists, one mathematician, one scientist in Canada did is they looked at this, they, they asked the, the author of this claim for his data, he would not provide it. So they started putting other data in. And they found out that the hockey stick model would produce a hockey stick for any data, any data of any kind. Oh. And so what happened, the IPCC withdrew the hockey stick graph from its report afterward, um, but this was used by most climate alarmist advocates as proof that increasing CO2 levels in the 20th century, including by, by men especially, we're creating this existential crisis, and it turns out that it was not true. So they're using this to close down the pipeline. Yes. And they're- You, you mean know, the Keystone pipeline the from Keystone Canada through- The Keystone XL pipeline, yeah. right? And they're, they're gonna use it, as was indicated by the imperative of bringing environmental justice to the fore, yep. gonna use it in many, many policy Cases. You know what's, I think what really needs to be disentangled is the way in which President Biden and those around him in these policy areas are using the term environmental justice as a way of bringing together really unrelated and complex issues. For example, um, environmental justice has sometimes been used in a much more um, legitimate or persuasive way, for example, to discuss and investigate the ways in which uh, waste dumps have been located nearer to poor or minority communities. That is regrettable. Um, uh, they've talked about environmental justice when it comes to the Flint water supply, where it was neglected and they were exposed to greater uh, risk, maybe because the people had less political clout. There was certainly a poorer community in, in, in Flint. Those kind of environmental justice issues deserve some attention in my, in my view. But this matter of environmental justice, which has to do with turning away from any, uh, well, disputable scientific evidence and just making a dogma out of uh, global warming seems like a completely different sense of environmental justice. He's trying to meld the two because of the political power of doing so. I'm gonna, I'm gonna gently disagree with you with all due respect, Graham. I think the two examples you cited, uh, the common wisdom on them are mistaken. I mean. Dump sites are going to be located where it's, it makes economic sense to do so. Uh, people who live, it's like living near an airport, okay? They're going to live there. They might not like living near an airport, 
but housing prices are lower and discounted and the rents are lower and so forth. And, you know, uh, if something is invading you from the dump, like some sort of poison is coming <laughs> into your breath, uh, well, okay, that's a, a tort, that's an injury, that's an invasion, that shouldn't be legal. But I think, you know, if there's a disgusting building or your friend wears an ugly tie, you shouldn't be able to say, oh, that's an injustice being done to me. So, and similarly with Flint, I mean, it was particular actions of state and local government that caused this. People were trying to cut corners. People were, you know, and that's where we should look to this. We shouldn't look to some grand picture of justice. It was dumb or corrupt or self-serving politicians and bureaucrats who did the Flint problem. Well, your your points are your points are persuasive, but I think you sure still would agree with me that those issues, whatever the truth about them might be in the dumps yeah. and so forth, are completely different ball yes, of wax. From, I agree with this. Yeah. This, this, this environmental justice, namely endorsing the climate alarmism agenda, that's a really different ball of wax. And they're putting them together. Agreed. And they are. They're conflating all these things. It's part of it's part of intersectionality. Everything that I want or don't like is connected to every other thing. So uh, I would also throw in the Love Canal story. Yes, a great example. Right. So the Love Canal uh, story basically was an area, uh, it was Occidental Petroleum, um, was, had a waste site. They contained it based on the standards of doing so. The uh, school, local school district laid claim to it uh, with eminent domain, and uh, they countermanded the standards that Occidental put into preserving uh, that site and cut into it and built uh, through eminent domain, they basically built a, a subdivision. And the, uh, as a result, people were exposed to harms and it was responsibility of uh, essentially progressives, progressive ideas to socialize uh, the area and uh, not use the tort system as a basis for disputes. And I think that you'll find the same thing is true with almost all these dump sites. Most dump sites are government uh, sites and uh, you have a tragedy of the commons and people are not held accountable through sovereign immunity and so on and so forth. But I think, Graham, your point is well taken. But I think the development of the idea of environmental justice comes from these other incidents. And yeah. now they've latched onto the climate change issue as the overarching explanation. Right. Yeah, a good point. Capitalism yeah. is the source of this, individual agency, property rights. And the truth of the matter is that's not has nothing to do with it whatsoever. No socialist country like the Soviet Union ever had any pollution problems. Uh -huh. Exactly. Uh -huh. right. <laughs> a horrible blight. Right. So they're they're basically using uh, bad science uh, as the basis for an ideological crusade. And, you know, it's like the issue of um, systemic racism. It's the same basic um, formula that uh, it doesn't really matter what the particulars are, whether you chose or acted in a racist manner. The fact that you are white or black or whatever is the defining uh, factor. And we're going to uh, manage society from top down. Uh, to overcome this. So it's very concerning that yeah. Susan Rice right. has got a warrant for the whole federal government to put racial preferences first yes. in policy making. That's right. This is uh, certainly counter to classical liberalism and putting the rights of the individual first. And it's really it's really counter to New Deal type type liberalism oh, yes, too. Right. So it's it's a very, very unfortunate form of ethnic nationalism. Yeah, right. exactly. The ethnic part. I mean, when we hear about the equity agenda, what it seems to mean is actually uh, turning away from... It's racial preferences. It's racialism. It's racialism. Yeah, racialism. I actually mm -hmm. think the term we should use is neo-racism. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's a good term. Because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you just say racism, people say, oh, well, what do you mean? It's not apartheid of South Africa. It's right. not National Socialist Germany. This is a new kind of racialism. And I think it's it 
means that the people who are advocating have to respond, whereas they can be dismissive if you say racism. I think if you call it neo-racism, mm -hmm. you're pinning the tail on the donkey a little better. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I, I'm very concerned about, um, this is the, the new version of the, what some call the age old conflict between science and religion. And I would say more broadly between science and individual worth of persons uh, on one hand and religion on the other. It's just it's flipped from what people usually think. The new religion, which is you know disconnected from the need for evidence uh, and insulated from criticism by its own dogmas, the new religion is this kind of equity environmentalism, neo-racism. It has a religious character to it. Right, what Hayek called scientism. Yeah, I think we're caught in an awkward situation because the three of us all think that the Judeo-Christian <laughs> religious tradition is pretty good and that we're well but it's it. its expressions have sometimes gone off the rails too into of a course. kind of anti-rationalism yeah of course we think that rationalism and religion can can be uh, partners and serve side by side and that you can have rationally defensible religion and indeed science that's not anti-religion but the problem is that the worst parts of religion, where you surrender your mind, you surrender your reason, you don't think, well, God gave me a mind and maybe I should use it. Uh, you don't bear that in mind. Uh, it's coming forth in the way these people adhere to these beliefs. Historically, you might say this is a kind of a new age left progressive fideism. Yeah. Fideism was the old term. Right. It's a fideism. kind of fideism. Fideism, that's exactly right. It's also a a sort of a neo-paganism too, I'd say. Yeah, there's oh, a lot of neo-paganism here. Right. Yeah, but that's a whole subject. We should we should come back to that. But let me just mention a couple other things. I, we're going to head toward the question of immigration reform, which is also at the top of the Biden agenda. But before we do, uh, another one of the early Biden executive orders seems to be his suspending arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and re-entry into Syria. Um, I'm not sure what to make of all this. I think Bill may have especially important comments on this. I thought that we were glad that countries like the United Arab Emirates were creating, reestablishing diplomatic relations with the state of Israel and the Saudis were going to follow suit. If we're now, if the U.S. is now going to withhold arms sales to them, will that undermine the detente between Israel and its Arab neighbors? What do you think, Bill? The first thing I want to say is about the Syria thing that you mentioned. So there was yeah. some... Uh, so, so people who worry that the Biden administration is going to bring us back into endless war, which I think we all should be rationally concerned about, uh, pointed to some trucks and various things happening of U.S. equipment and people with regard to Syria. But I think we're not really at the point where we should be alarmed. There's routine um, resupply and rotating of people and stuff like that. And I think, uh, you know, I've tried to read several articles on this and my settled view is that, yes, watch what happens in Syria, but I don't think anything really bad has happened yet. So now with regard to the Trump administration's initiatives in the Middle East, the diplomatic rapprochement between Israel and a number of the Gulf countries and so forth, it's interesting, you know, many critics of the Trump administration's foreign policy have said, and I just most recently saw Dennis Ross, the famous negotiator in the Middle East under multiple administrations saying, look, it, it, let's try and preserve this. We, 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 we the experts, were wrong here. And uh, the Trump people's approach to kind of circle around the direct Palestinian-Israeli conflict and try and bring a, a broader detente to the area, that seems to have had a really productive effect. And I think, Graham, you're very right to say that they're trying to, you know, they're, they're going to upset the apple cart of the achievements here if they start monkeying around with the United Arab Republics and, and Saudis yeah. on. Now, the, pro the problem is also the Yemen conflict. Right, indeed. Yes. And, uh, and so here we have a terrible slaughter. Both sides are great, you know, pro properly accused of atrocities. There's multiple players here, none of whom are very attractive. This is really not something the United States should try to be settling. Yeah, it's On the a other mess. hand, if it's we're helping one of them, 
The other side thinks, well, that's intervention, and it also involves the Saudi-Iran conflict. So, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it's a very, it's, I, I'm reminded of the boycott on selling arms to, to Spain during the 30s. This is a very complicated problem. So I think, you know, it kind of depends what their next steps are. Maybe they have some constructive follow-up to have here, but I think the real danger is in their reaction that, well, we're going to supplant Trump. They're going to do something that rolls back some of his genuine yeah, achievements. Yeah, I, I worry about that. I mean, if, if the U.S. is perceived as tilting away from those states that are becoming more sympathetic to Israel and tilting toward Iran, right. Yeah. you rejoining that, um, whatever that agreement right. was. Right, no, well, right. they're already, you know, they're yeah. trying to get back into that. I mean, and it's the same crowd. They want to restore the status of their previous uh, agreements uh, and that legacy. I have to say, we have to be a little bit cautious here if they could really get a good agreement with Iran with regard to nuclear weapons. Well, sure, I, if it's I, I good. Really, yeah. yeah, I know. Well, that's the thing. If it's good, that's the very hard part. And yep. the Iranians have shown they're very clever <laughs> at uh, you know, saying one thing and doing another. Okay, so um, I'm going to change the subject here, unless you want to jump back in on this, David, for a second. I, I just think that part of the motivation here is to restore the uh, status of the Obama-Biden Iranian deal. Their foreign policy. And I think if they do that, it's going to throw the whole thing into jeopardy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now turn your gaze southward. Uh, Apparently, there's a caravan of some 9,000 people that headed up from Honduras and is now in Guatemala. And the Guatemalan police and military are doing battle with them because they're basically invading their country. But they say they're on their way to El Norte and they want to go through Mexico. President Biden um, has been sending some signals. I guess this caravan is responding to the beckoning signals coming from President Biden, who says that he's going to turn back all of President Trump's immigration uh, hostility or immigration restriction, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Biden moved to suspend the the so-called Muslim ban, which never was any such thing, but it was a ban on Muslim-majority countries. Uh, he's going to reverse the Trump administration's uh, position on Dreamers. He's going to propose and support legislation for a path to citizenship for present illegals, and I guess anybody who happens to get here in time. Uh, at the same time, uh, he was going to suspend deportations that had been underway, but apparently a court blocked that. Uh, what do you think about the deportation question and the court action there, Bill? Any thoughts on that? Well, I, I mean, this is partly connected to the uh, anti-ICE demonstrations of the last few years. So uh, ICE is really a kind of anti-crime police, okay? So they're going around and they're particularly concentrating on criminals, on felons who are also illegal immigrants and they're catching them and deporting them. Uh, You know, uh, so it's kind of, in a way, strange or some sort of bizarre symbolism that's been fastened onto for people to be opposed to people catching criminals. But part of this release them all memo that was a co- <laughs> internally within the uh, Homeland Security Department. Under, under Biden recently, you mean? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, right okay. now, mm-hmm. right, release them all. That means that felons or people charged with felonies would also be released, thousands of them each month. And uh, so anyway, for various technical reasons, the Texas government said, look, we made an agreement with Homeland Security, federal law says this and that about deporting people within 90 days. You can't have this 100-day suspension. You didn't give us adequate notice. You didn't allow us to comment on it. And the federal courts have agreed to a short-term thing. Right. And the judge involved has said he would look at a longer-term thing. But clearly, in their zeal to back away from the Trump people, and I don't want to claim that the Trump people had some kind of perfect record on handling this immigration problem, but in the Biden administration to zeal to do something different, they've caused chaos, and they might have loaded us with a lot of criminals who should be in jail or, or out of the country. 
Well, it would seem that the the court uh, blocking the suspension of deportations is is a is a minor barrier to what is otherwise a pretty clear, comprehensive direction on part of the Biden administration. Would it be fair, David? Do you think to call the Biden approach to immigration open borders? I think um, it is being framed that way. It, it's interesting in the Democratic Party there there still are rival groups. Um, they're the open borders people. They're also our, our protection, labor protectionist people. Um, I think uh, some of the some of the organized labor groups um, are not going to be happy with total open borders. Um, but that's the uh, the narrative. And I think uh, again, getting back to Susan Rice and so forth, that's the way it's going to be framed. The interesting thing is that the Biden people had a problem in 2014. Yes. And they didn't handle it very well either. Well, one of the ironies also is is that uh, in Biden's taking over the Oval Office, the statue on the bookcase behind him is of Cesar Chavez, and Chavez was a militantly anti-immigrant labor was a organizer. Absolutely. I mean, he literally what? had gangs that would go out and kill uh, Im illegal immigrants. I mean, right. torture and kill them. Because right. they were undermining the position of his field workers. Right, right exactly. Right. So it's kind of ironic, or maybe not so ironic. We'll see. Uh, but I think there's a bigger problem here uh, in the debate. And the problem is that many liberals, progressives, and libertarians um, are basically saying the same thing, which is that it, That's doesn't, unusual. <laughs> it doesn't matter um, what sort of subsidies the government the federal government and other governments give to induce and support uh, illegal immigration. Uh, and that argument is based on certain studies, but if taken to its logical conclusion, uh, where do you make the cutoff? Should a uh, hundred million people come? Uh, should a billion people come? Uh, clearly there is an effect of subsidy. The old adage, if you subsidize something, you get more of it. Uh, there also are all sorts of issues pertaining to the kind of immigrants, not just criminals, uh, which uh, should be dealt with, you know, any place within the United States or outside it. But part of it, the issue is that it, it, um, the emphasis is on low-income immigrants and low-income immigrant, low immigrants, based on the the argument for free Im immigration, are the ones that jeopardize the model. In other words, their ability to be productive doesn't really uh, uh, kick in on net until they're here in the United States for about 10 years. It's the high-skilled immigrant that the productivity kicks in almost immediately. But the people who get the transfer payments and other subsidies from the federal government, we're talking about free housing and healthcare and education, whatever, um, are and I think, income. David, I think these are the incentives that are probably drawing the 9,000 people in the caravan. They can exactly. get all those benefits if they can right. just get across the border. So, you know, the, many economists, in the, for example, uh, Milton Friedman, Nobel laureate Gary Becker, uh, Tom Sowell, Walter Williams. I mean, it's almost every free market economist has said, and this is Milton Friedman's quote. He says, it's just obvious you can't have free immigration and a welfare state. Now, there, there are ways of, of parsing that, uh, which are worth looking at. But the proposal that, say, Gary Becker made, as well as our senior fellow, Rich Vetter, was to create a visa or uh, essentially a voucher system, which would be tradable on NASDAQ or wherever. And if someone wants to become a uh, coming to the United States with uh, the potential to become a citizen, you pay a fee. Well, like it's an immigration permit. Right, exactly. Now, if someone moves into a proprietary community, you pay a fee. Uh, if you go to Disneyland, you pay a fee. Uh, in the Middle Ages, the free medieval cities all had a charge if you want to enter the city gate. And the reason for this was that it was viewed as unfair for the residents, the members, the citizens, to be forced to pay for the social services of free riders. And the idea of being a free rider, especially given the tragedy of the commons, which is what the welfare state, the administrative state creates, um, is no trivial matter. So uh, in, in the tradition of Milton and Gary Becker and others, um, I think that um, this idea of 
of having a fee or a voucher is a way to internalize the costs, to neutralize the anti-immigrant bias against people, and to solve this, this problem. Now, uh, you can also go further to privatize uh, these different public domains, including the welfare state, so that people are not forced to subsidize other people. Um, the view that some economists are, are proposing that the welfare state makes no difference and that transfer payments and subsidies makes no difference is, uh, is not true. A similar argument, by the way, I should mention, related to another one of Biden's proposals is um, uh, he has an executive order to nationalize uh, a $15 uh, an hour minimum wage. So there are progressive economists who make the same argument that the minimum wage increase, this would be about twice the current federal level, right. would make no difference. And uh, in the history of economics, going back to the ancient Greeks, there's a fallacy called the fallacy. When they, when they say it has no effects, they mean it has no unemployment effects. It has no unemployment effects, but they actually believe that it actually increases productivity. <laughs> there's a fallacy coming out of the ancient Greeks called the fallacy of the heap. And the fallacy of the heap is that if you have a uh, pile of sand, you take one grain away, you still have the heap. If you take a second grain away, you still have a heap. But the total heap is different. And at what point does the marginal cost kick in uh, where it makes a measurable difference? To say it never kicks in means the heap doesn't exist. And uh, that's the kind of fallacy that a lot of these progressives are following. And I'm concerned a lot that some of the libertarian economists are um, buying into it. So what many of these people are saying many of the libertarian economists are saying, is that the welfare state makes no difference. We're not going to address it. And what we should do is have open borders now, and we'll deal with the welfare state later. I think the idea must be on their part and on the part of some of the progressive advocates of open borders that the, the immense wealth of the United States economy surely could allow us to give without limit benefits to entrance to the country because our wealth is so great. But everyone knows that wealth is scarce, like everything else. And so the point of, of Gary Becker and others is let's put a price on it. Don't, don't uh, put a negative price on it where you induce someone to uh, take an action they wouldn't normally take. Uh, they're the ones who want to, uh, to move. Um, there's a cost to it. Why should the native population be forced to pay for it? So I think one, one nice thing about David's proposal or Milton Friedman, Gary Becker type proposal is that some people would say, well, we can't admit any more immigrants until we've totally obliterated the welfare state. I yeah. know you might think you who are listening to this that nobody would argue this way, but there I can aren't. tell you, I know uh, quite a number of people who might argue this way. I do too. And David is trying to have a rational intermediary position. Yes, David is skeptical of a lot of the welfare state. Yes, David is concerned about unfair burdens that immigrants might place on people. And he's trying to bring the, the science of economics and these actual social problems into some kind of sensible conjunction. Right. Interestingly, I, I, when I saw President Biden's initiative on this immigration matter, I went back and looked at an interesting piece that uh, Independent Institute itself published with one of our uh, senior fellow economists, Rich Vetter, on the subject. Just a, just a brief quote to illustrate your point, David. Uh, he says in this piece um, that we published that uh, proposed to sell 5,000 immigrant permits every business day via a market, such as NASDAQ or Chicago Board of Trade, this would increase total immigrant flows. Now that's interesting, you increase total right. immigrant flows, sales of the visa permits to felons or others would be prohibited, and some free visas could be given for humanitarian purposes in addition to those sold in markets. Right, and that's the idea, you're pricing it. Um, you know, economists, many economists will agree that subsidizing housing and healthcare and any kind of behavior um, distorts market transactions and the price of something and the consumption of it and other things. Why would mobility and migration be any different? And so 
uh, I think not only would this approach solve the problem as you and, and Bill are, are describing it, but I think it also would, would radically reduce the anti-immigrant bias right. and bigotry. Exactly. And xenophobia against people who can contribute to society but are not forcing other people to pay their way. And we would not, I don't want to speak for somebody who's, I, I haven't really thought this proposal through that much myself, but a company could also yes. uh, say the money. to a, so, so yeah. I'm a farmer, I'm Del Monte Farms and I need some people. I will pay for so many permits for such and such time period or right. whatever. So you can have a kind of private privatized uh, Bracero program. Not only that, but also um, skilled permanent. workers. If, right. You know, if the tech industry wants uh, right. coding people or whatever, they can put up the money to pay for the permit and the, the visa. Interesting. And, right. And so you, you essentially are internalizing the cost and risk uh, for someone to be an entrepreneur and to contribute to society. And uh, I don't see the downside to it. I mean, if, if it's... If it's handled through markets like NASDAQ and so on, I think that would minimize a lot of the tendency to politicize it. So one problem we have is this area is so much a kind of a taboo topic yeah. in some ways. Is that something like Richard Vedder's somewhat detailed proposal here hasn't gotten scrutiny from fellow economists. So, you know... There might be hidden hidden problems with it, but uh... maybe the upside here is that President Biden is reopening the subject in a new way, and maybe there are ways to get these different ideas out on the table that actually have cross-cultural, bipartisan appeal in ways that people haven't even thought about. We should get better to recast the thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, when Rich, when Rich wrote about this and Milton talked about the others years ago, it was really before people thought there was the issue of immigration was important. Uh, that's when he made his original proposal. So I think people do see it as important now, and here's a way out. Okay, here's a, another question, a little different angle on some of these issues. Um, uh, a little bit ago, I think it was a couple weeks ago now, Michael Moore, the famous filmmaker, put out a, some kind of a documentary piece about making America California again. And then it turns out that uh, California governor, our governor, Gavin Newsom, wrote a letter to Joe Biden upon his accession to the presidency in which he recommended California as a, 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 a model of inspiration. I think he called it, yeah, a model for what's possible. That's what Gavin Newsom called mm -hmm. California. Right. And the Los Angeles Times had a front page article proposing exactly this, that yeah. California should be the model for this. So, wow. Okay. So, so should it be the model? Um, you know, you wonder about what's going on in California. Just to give people from elsewhere a little taste, you may not have heard about this yet, or maybe you have, but uh, it was in our local newspaper, the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, this morning, telling us that the San Francisco School Board um, has decided to have its equity agenda of its own, mirroring President Biden's, presumably, and they voted to change the names on 44 schools in San Francisco because the people who's were, got the school names were not worth it because they were somehow tainted by wrong attitudes. So they're getting rid of Abraham Lincoln High School. They're getting rid of George Washington High School. Uh, they're getting rid of Roosevelt Middle School. Although board members admitted they didn't know whether they were voting against Franklin Delano or Theodore, but they know Roosevelt. Okay, got rid of Roosevelt Middle School, got rid of Paul Revere uh, Middle School, uh, got, rid of, got rid of Diane Feinstein Elementary School. Got rid of Thomas Jefferson Elementary School. Um, and the list goes on and on. Oh, even Robert Louis Stevenson has been canceled. His name is being taken off of an elementary school. Daniel Webster, yep. his name is being taken. This is what's, what is now the, the uh, proposal in San Francisco, Nancy Pelosi's own city, our own beloved city across the bay. Um, but to me, it feels like the California model, at least in San Francisco, is in effect symbolic secession from the United States of America. It's certainly, it's certainly a Robespierre-type Jacobin uh, mob rule of some sort. I, I grew up in the area uh, right near George Washington High School uh, and the other names, some of them anyway. I, I'm sure Alamo School, which I went to. Oh, yeah, that's uh, on the list. Another one that's that's on the list. <laughs> Even though the Mexicans did win the Battle they of the Alamo. They won the Battle of the Alamo, I know. Uh, but in, in any case, uh, yeah, this is this is a horror show. And, uh, you know, I didn't realize Paul Revere was a leading Confederate 
<laughs> whatever they're thinking there. Yeah. It's crazy. It's erasing history. I think that part of this is virtue signaling, woke virtue signaling. I think it also relates to Shelby Steele's point um, of white guilt, uh, that uh, white guilt for racism of the past, uh, as if we can't learn from the past. I mean, you can go back to the ancient Greeks. Uh, every Greek figure believed in slavery. To, to Aristotle and Plato, the idea of no slavery was inconceivable. They, you'd be laughed at. The same thing in the Roman Empire. Uh, so, and it was, it was true. It was true worldwide, in China and the Americas and in Africa, in Africa everywhere. It's clear, and and the late Tibor McCann pointed this out. It's clear if you read very carefully that there were a few people in those days who thought that slavery was wrong, morally yeah, they wrong. Were, they were, they were very, very minor and they were, and they not. were looked down on. Okay, and I think it's also clear that Aristotle himself saw there was some kind of problem because he tried to develop an elaborate uh, rationale for some kinds of people who didn't have the right mentality to be uh, free people. And so we're, we're right to criticize the ancient Greeks and Romans about this, but I think we should also say that even then, because they were right on other things, that led them to begin to question things and that we're at the end of a long chain right. of cause and events and concatenation of history and so forth, where we have a better insight based, importantly, on principles that they have. That's right. And I, I think the point of history is to learn, and it's, a, it's an iterative process. Yes. And if people did not have bad ideas in the past, no one would have learned they were bad ideas. Exactly. I mean, this is, this is an interesting point that, that uh, Alan Dershowitz makes, he says, look, the Old Testament, he's of Jewish background, I don't think we could really call him a super Orthodox Jew in his theology, but he has a whole book on Genesis in which he says, look at all the evil things going on in Genesis. Mm -hmm. the, the people and the religious thinkers at the time are trying to cope with the bad side of human nature. Yes. The temptations, the sins, the deceptions, the crimes that yes. people have, and they're working through the wrongs in order to understand rights and justice. And I think he actually had a kind of an interesting insight there. No, I think he's exactly right. I also think that symbolically, this move by the school district um, also, I mean, the board itself doesn't even know the history. No, right? for sure. <laughs> and so the question is, why should anybody trust them to educate children, period? Ah, now, now David has raised the greatest and most fundamental question <laughs> of all. Which relates to a forthcoming book of ours called Really Good Schools by James yeah. Tooley. But I think it, it, it shows the, uh, the fact that in uh, a public school system, uh, it is uh, subject to uh, trendy politics, yeah. all the usual kind of things we see in government bureaucracies. But this really is a sign these people have just are discrediting themselves as people who should have any responsibility, in my opinion, to educate children because they don't know what they're talking about. And they're, they're teaching children to be intolerant. I mean, you can go through the list of school names they're talking about changing. I mean, how many of these children know anything about virtually any of these people. Right. Well, listen, listen to this. This is an interesting little tidbit that happens to fit in here. It happens as we're here talking about whether these educators are suited to educating San children. Um, this is, in fact, National School Choice Week. Exactly. Ah, the is. great alternative. And yep. also, interestingly, today happens to be Holocaust Remembrance Day, the 76th anniversary. That's right. Because yep. of the liberation of Auschwitz. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm thinking to myself, if the California-based equity agenda involves the necessity of purging, cleansing, and eradicating every vestige of anything that could have a whiff of taint contrary to current views, um, 
it sure makes me think about uh, those moments in history where we have seen what happens when yes. there's kind of a, a purging, cleansing, eradicating impulse. Um, it, it doesn't end well. It doesn't end well. Those who forget the past are doomed to relive it. That's right. So um, let's, let's not go there. Let's not, I mean, and you know, the weirdest thing about the San Francisco School Board thing is that, as I said a moment ago, they're getting rid of the name of Diane Feinstein from one of the elementary schools. And apparently this is because of something she did. I heard this on the radio this morning. Uh, she, when she was mayor of San Francisco, apparently uh, she had some kind of a display of U.S. flags that she put at the city hall that was somehow offensive to uh, anti-flag progressives, and then maybe it was accentuated by the fact that she gave a hug to Mitch McConnell at the wrong moment and she wasn't supposed to be nice to him. So now her name is going to be taken off that school. Mm -hmm. I think it's that she gave a, a hug to uh, Senator Graham. Oh, it was Senator Graham. Yeah, yeah, right. Even worse, even worse, Senator Graham. <laughs> and now she's going to pay the price. Her name's going to be taken off the school. Where does this end? It's just well, crazy. I think I think a lot of this we're talking about, you know, the Biden executive orders and the and a lot of this other stuff. Uh, I think progressives are so desperate to restore restore control of the conversation, which they believe they lost during the Trump period, mm -hmm. um, that they are pushing. They're trying to push everything at the same time, and mm -hmm. you know, Biden is simply a channel to uh, drive this through because uh, he's not all there and he doesn't have any real positions. His positions have been all over the Mac in his career. Mm -hmm. um, They've got to define him. Right. And I think what's, what's happening already is that people are seeing uh, what progressives believe and they don't like it. They think it is mm -hmm. a threat. It's loony. It is... Mm -hmm. um, crackpot. And I think, if anything, we're already seeing a, a backlash to it. And so the solution in the progressive circles is primarily to silence people from even being able to talk about it. So speaking of speaking of conversation, uh, California Congresswoman um, Nancy Pelosi from the city of San Francisco, uh, one of the first acts in her role in the new, new session of Congress was to get the House to adopt a new rule governing the official House Rules document, uh, which requires gender-neutral language in that document. Uh, they can no longer use things like mother, father. They have to say parent-child in the official rules document. Um, and aunt, aunt, uncle, grandmother, grandfather. Yeah, yeah, like she, parent. She, who likes to, Pelosi herself likes to stress her role <laughs> as a mother yeah, and so she forth. sure does even worse you know you're, the, the the document now is no longer allowed to use terms like himself and herself it has to be themself even if it's a singular so mm -hmm. the new house rules uh, put forward by california congresswoman uh, nancy pelosi <laughs> re require uh grammatical error in their usage. Now, here's what's weird. Know. About I don't know. This Congress one might be too good. <laughs> Maybe Congress thing or Congress. <laughs> well, I don't want to go uh, there, but I, know, I mean, I'm it kidding. Please, FBI, do not take me away for that <laughs> terrible joke. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, some of commentators in response to this have made, well, inaccurate claims such as uh, they're banning gendered words. Well, no, they're not banning gendered words. They're only banning gendered words from a particular House Rules document. Um, and so those defending this kind of weird language change are saying, oh, well, you know, the resistance to these, these weird neutered terms, it's all overblown because they're not banning it. Well, th you got to think about it, though. If, in fact, there is something so unseemly, inappropriate about this kind of language, mother, father, himself, herself, if there's something wrong about it, so wrong that the House rules can't reflect it, then that the House of Representatives is sending a message to the country about the impropriety yeah. of historic human language. Now, they're, right. not ban they're not banning it, but they're condemning it. No, but it's a step towards banning it. Yeah. And it will be picked up by other people. I mean, the, the hypocrisy for her, of course, was that when she mandated this in the House rules, uh, when she gave her presentation on the House floor demanding Trump's impeachment, she referred to herself as, quote, I stand before you as a wife, a mother, a grandmother, a daughter, 
unquote. Mm -hmm. Which is wonderful. She should be all those things. Exactly. That's <laughs> that's perfectly appropriate. But it's like her her stand on masks and so forth, and then going and having her hair done uh, uh, in the lockdowns when other uh, salons could be open. You know, it's the same arrogance. And you know, this all this gets back to my point about progressives being so desperate to get their way, um, but their views are not coherent, really. And they come out as hypocrites, like, you know, the story about Newsom and the French Laundry and uh, uh, London being at the French Laundry and so on. And so, in fact, these kinds of things are what is motivating the recall effort against Newsom. Yeah, exactly. I think the audit of the unemployment office. Yes. And now they're going to have to claw, try and claw back. How many billion is it? It's now projected at at least 20 billion. Okay, tell, tell folks in the rest of the country who are with us may not know what we're talking about. Please explain yeah. briefly. It, this this could be, even though the French, French laundry thing is, you yeah. know, the great example of hypocrisy. Right. When you go to people and you say, we gave you this money and now we're taking it back and they think well i applied for this and and they're not part of there was there was two things going on here in a sense there was a criminal gang that stole millions okay billions and then then there's the inadequacy of this bureaucracy yes. that didn't really follow who exactly was qualified to get what amount and so they sent it out rapidly and their excuse was well we're in a hurry because there's a crisis and but now they want it back. Mm -hmm. This is going to cause serious, serious resentment. This goes against people's feel. It, the government might be right in some technical sense about this. I'm not saying there's no merit to this, but this is a bureaucratic error. And, you know, take it out of the salaries of these bureaucrats, okay? But I, people are not going to feel... They're just going to be really resentful about this. And it's the timing during the COVID shutdown, yeah, especially. Right. Um, you know, people are uh, under the assumption that they're going to be covered if they're displaced as far as their job. And here they see billions going to criminal organizations and bureaucratic incompetence. Um, and the state is in massive debt. I mean, it's... it's is the it's one of the biggest corruption scandals in the history of the United States. Right. Yeah, people can scarcely take the magnitude in. It's so great. Right. It's so and it's part of what's fueling this recall effort of Newsom. No question about yeah. it. The problem really is though, who who could replace him? Yeah. Uh, right. There are not really a lot of candidates uh, be worse. of sufficient stature that would be an improvement. Um, I mean, I I can. I can see former mayor Faulkner of San Diego as being an improvement. His policy positions are not exactly mine, but they're pretty good. And he's managed a huge city. Yeah, uh, Some the people best looking city. for someone with better name recognition have uh, some other ideas, mm -hmm. but... Uh, so I would just say, you know, in some, uh, President Biden, please don't take California's errors national. Well, there's an, by the way, one thing you might be interested in, uh, Assemblyman Kevin Kiley right. uh, sent a letter to President Biden um, basically going through Newsom's uh, talk about how California should be the model for the country. And it's point by point refutation oh. of the absurd claims that Newsom is making. Kylie was so great during the fight against AB5. That's right. I would mention that someone called me he the other mentions, day. He mentions our open letter in his letter. Yeah. Oh, good. Great. So someone called me the other day and said, well, if we could uh, recall Newsom, maybe Larry Elder would be a good candidate. Maybe. Uh, yeah. He certainly got very sound positions. Yeah. Well, l listen, while we're on California, and we're going to come to a close here quick, um, but one of our participants sent this interesting observation in here. Let me read it to you. Um, it says, are you familiar with Michael Lynn's The New Class War? Do you think that California is exemplary of the elite managerial overclass technocracy that tends to render poor governance? Yes, and that's the same argument that Angela Cotavia makes.
I know, but I I hesitate to recommend Michael Lynn to anybody. Yeah. I I knew him back when he was ghostwriting a book for Bill Buckley calling for national service. Yeah. Um, he's a, he's a very interesting guy. Yeah. But I I don't recommend him. The idea of a new technological class though. I think the questioner's yeah. question yeah, about the a questioner's new... question is a good one and lots of oligarch is right. Lots and... of people going back to yep. the new class thinkers of the 20s and 1930s and 1940s, James Burnham, um, all kinds of Max Nomad, all kinds of people have had ideas along these lines and Lind has taken up his own version of it. But his he is a very hardcore Alexander Hamilton, big government kind of guy. And he wrote a whole, and he put together a whole anthology along those lines. And he has no real sense of the limits of government skill or whatever when it comes to managing the economy of the United States. Mm -hmm. So I think, in a sense, in a sense, I would say. And by the way, he wrote an interesting thing about the Alamo. Since we're talking about things, Lind is better as a critic than he is as. Proponent. Someone whose yeah. advice we should follow. Yeah, and and many of the classical liberal economists in the 20th century also have talked about, uh, I mean, Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom, for example, how the worst get on top. I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly what... Pareto, right. Pareto, the, the economist, the famous right. economist, of course, but also a sociologist, yes. and had all sorts of theories about elite rule and ideological propaganda and right. agenda setting and so forth. So if you centralize power, you're asking for trouble, and that's what we're getting. So, And we're getting it in ways that are not only governmental, but also amplified by big tech. Um, you know, and it, the kind of the nexus between the managerial elite and the high-tech elite, uh, largely based here in California, is kind right, of stunning. But, that's, for, but that phenomenon, depending on the stage of, you know, when in history, Adam Smith wrote his, wealth, his book, The Wealth of Nations, uh, as an attack on uh, what they call mercantilism, which was royal privileges to businesses and media and shippers and whatever, uh, educational institutions, and the same thing happened. And that's so the ad, the the axiom from Lord Acton about power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely mm -hmm. is this lesson, which of course was uh, the basis for. Uh, the founders of this country in creating a republic to restrain the central powers and disperse power mm -hmm. so that liberty and uh, competitive institutions could be checks um, on having centralized power. Precisely. Yeah, we have that legacy. We need to make the most of it. Maybe that's a good place to stop for, for today. I mean, there's a whole lot more that we could say, especially about the nexus between California high tech um, you know, and, and the nation's managerial elite. Uh, we'll save more of that for another day, but um, thanks to our participants through that interesting question, and thank you to David Thoreau and to Bill Evers. You guys are always worth talking to at length. Thank you, Graham. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. And, and thank you to all of our friends who joined us today on Independent Outlook, again, coming to you from the Independent Institute here in Oakland, California. Uh, you can always gather some resources that we try and make available very widely to you on our website, independent.org. Uh, www.independent.org if you like the old-fashioned way. And also thank you to our friends at thinkspot.com for making this possible. Take care and join us again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.